I always sort of used golf as the escape from dealing with stuff. But it was actually on the golf courses where I would did the majority of my thinking, mm. right? So all of those times I was in therapy and my therapist would say, when you think about these sorts of things, try and process it in this way or whatever it might have been, whatever thing. That was what I was doing when I was out on the golf course because I was alone with my thoughts. I couldn't escape what had happened to me. I couldn't just think about something different. Your brain don't work that way, does it? Hi, and welcome to the Golf Yourself Healthy podcast, where deep, meaningful, and philosophical conversations about golf and life are par for the course. I'm your host, Chris Lynch. I'd like to offer you a warm welcome, whether you're a returning GYH podcast listener, or if this is the first time you're tuning in for an episode. In this episode two, I'm in conversation with my longtime friend and fellow avid golfer, Ben Seabrook. In our conversation, Ben openly, honestly, and vulnerably shares his experience of golfing himself through grief, following the sudden and traumatic loss of his son Dylan, who was born sleeping in 2012. Ben talks about his love, respect, and admiration for his wife Bryony, who has worked tirelessly in recent years to raise much-needed awareness around the subject of baby loss, and through her efforts, has raised several tens of thousands of pounds through fundraising events for Tommy's, a leading charity which supports families all over the UK who have been affected by baby loss. Ben talks about how golf runs in the family. He owes his own introduction to the game to his brother Matt, who was working in the golf industry at the time. And looking ahead to the next generation of golfer from the Seabrook family, Ben's eight-year-old son Jensen has also recently taken up the game. Ben and I recorded this episode on site at Royal Norwich Golf Club after an early morning round of golf on a cracking golf course, followed by some delicious lunch in the modern and progressive clubhouse. I hope you enjoy listening to my conversation with Ben. A word of warning, if you're a Man City fan or you're from Skegness, you might find this episode a little bit triggering. Also, I'd love to know from you, our listeners, where you stand on the saying, speaking your truth versus speaking the truth. All shall be revealed if you stick around and listen to the full episode. Please don't forget to leave a review on this episode or the show itself on whichever podcast platform you're listening on. Your ratings and feedback will not only help this podcast expand its reach and get the word out to the masses that golf is good for you, but the feedback and comments you offer will also help us to continually enhance the show for your enjoyment and listening pleasure. If you know of anyone who you think would enjoy the show, please share the link with them. And don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Instagram at Golf Yourself Healthy and X at GYHpod. Oh, and finally, always remember to embrace the rough and forever cherish the fairway. Welcome to Golf Yourself Healthy. You are the first guest that is ever featured on this podcast. To mark that occasion, I feel I should have brought like a big confetti gun or something, uh, and celebrated you like a supermarket celebrates their like millionth customer or something. But I've, uh, alas, I haven't done that. But uh, how does it feel to be the first guest on this podcast? Uh, an honour and a privilege, I would say. I feel very, uh, I think it's a fantastic idea you've got to talk about this sort of stuff. So uh, yeah, I feel very privileged to be able to be your first official guest. I mean, to be honest with you, what you could potentially do is wait. And then if you get a better guest, 
You can demote me if you need to. But... <laughs> Just delay this episode. Yeah. Okay, yeah. right. And no. then we can edit this bit out. It's not a problem. No, no. We'll start off with a bang. And uh, I'm grateful that you've agreed to to come and, uh, and be on the podcast. So... For our listeners, just like Ben and I are joining you from uh, Royal Norwich Golf Club, where we're sat in the rather uh, swish chairman's office. I think this is called. Yeah, okay. Uh, I think it's just called that. I think it's. I don't think the chairman. No, it just actually there. resides in here yeah. and does his work, does his or her work in here. But um, we've uh, just enjoyed a great round of golf here today. It's been quite an eventful day to get here. I would say I drove across from Wales yesterday afternoon, uh, yesterday evening. And uh, we got up early this morning to get over here for the first tee of the day. Mm -hmm. But uh, I had a bit of a calamity when we woke up this morning and realized that I'd traveled all the way from Wales with one set of underpants. <laughs> so I had to make sure that we could do a little um, detour via Tesco Extra on the way to get some underpants and also contact lens solution that I'd forgotten as well. But uh, Which you then subsequently left in the car. So had no pants on after you'd showered after the round. That's right, absolutely, yeah. So I, I forgot my pants, not once, but twice. But uh, Ben saved me, <laughs> so uh, he went back out from the changing rooms to the car and got the clean pants in. So I am wearing <laughs> clean pants for this episode. But maybe not for some of the other episodes. You well, optional, we'll see. We'll see how it goes, <laughs> see how I feel for each episode. Um, should we spend just maybe a couple of minutes talking about Royal Norwich Golf Club? Because I guess... Uh, in the context of Golf Yourself Healthy, really a big part of this is around making this game more diverse and inclusive. And certainly, if I can reflect on my experience of having been here today and some of the things that I've observed and experienced. So I knew coming here, for example, that they have genderless golf tees. And I kind of was quite curious about that and wasn't sure what that would mean in practice. But I mean, can you say a bit about what how that works? Yeah, I mean, they have five tees. Obviously not in the winter, they have three in the winter, but in the summer months they have five tees. You have the very back tees, which kind of the championship tees. I don't even think they really play the competitions off those far back ones, the general competitions. They might play like the summer champs and things like that off there. But the um, you then have, I can't remember the colours of them, but rather than having white, yellow, red, and then the reds always being denominated as the ladies tees you can literally come around here and play whichever off whichever tee you want whatever sex you are however old you are as well so i think if you looked at it you traditionally you would say your forward tees are obviously your junior tees and then all that kind of stuff but there's some quite there's some quite talented female golfers here which i'm sure play off some of the further back tees for the challenge but yeah. I, I like it because if you've got if you're playing on a i tend to play quite a lot in the evenings as you know right so if i'm coming out after work sometimes i think to myself i've only really got an hour and a half before it gets dark Actually, I can make it a bit quicker for myself if I'm playing off those forward tees. So I'm hitting a long iron or driver and then a very short iron in rather than hitting driver, long iron, all that kind of stuff. Just makes the game quicker. So I think it's quite, um, yeah, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it should be progressive, but I suppose from a golfing perspective, it probably mm. is quite progressive that you would have that optionality, um, which is good. Yeah. And I think, you know, so other things that I've noticed or, well, were pointed out to me. So, we, the pair of us, went out and played, and we were joined by another member, Gareth. Mm -hmm. And so, Gareth, if you're listening to this, thank you very much for your company today. We had a really pleasant round and a good laugh over lunch afterwards. But um, he pointed out to me as well that uh, the, so traditionally, historically, what you would see in golf clubs and in clubhouses and things is, I would say, a certain degree of pomp around the the plaques and things that are on the uh, walls in terms of who's won what tournament and mm -hmm. things like that and I think what they they still maintain that to an element here but it's kind of I'm not sure it's hit, I mean what we just saw coming up the stairs here you've got like a it does denote the presidents and the yeah, captains, the captains and things but it's that isn't so present here and I think what 
they seem to have achieved is there's a balance of modernity and tradition. Yeah, I think, agree? Real, I think that's a good way of describing what they've, they've managed to, to do here. And I think they're, as I said, they're quite, it's quite a progressive golf club to be involved in. And when you see some of the stuff that they're thinking and doing and planning and doing, and as we talked about, they've put in a um, paddleboard court here. I think paddleboard, paddle, it's quite big in Spain, isn't it? Where it's, it's like a cross between yeah, tennis and squash. Squash, yeah, because yeah, it's got the yeah. walls on the side. Yeah, stuff. yeah. You know, they're probably not, I don't, I don't know of any other places in and around Norfolk that have thought to, to try that. So I think it's, um, it's looking at trying to encourage different types of people to come in, different people with different interests to come into a golf club. Mm. which is is good because the, the other thing is the restaurant down here is excellent so mm. they often do lots of like themed food nights or wine tastings and stuff like that which just gets more people that would naturally come to a golf club in Hull. And I could be wrong but having what I've just seen downstairs is I sense there are people that are in here just to eat yeah and not yeah, necessarily sure. they're not golfers you know or they might golf but they've come in here for a social occasion or whatever which yeah. I think is a good yeah a good sign so if uh we sort of Let's move on to chatting a bit about uh, your golf, your relationship with golf. <laughs> yeah, so okay. uh, how did it all begin? My, yeah, so my uh, beginnings in golf, I suppose, would actually probably have come from my brother, Matt. He worked in a golf club in a place near where I grew up in Isha, Moor Place, it was called. It was a little nine-hole um, public course, which um, wasn't very long, um, wasn't very pretty. That's where I started. I had a few lessons there. When I was probably eight or nine years old, I suppose, and I did enjoy it, but I think my lessons were happening in the winter, which kind of um, meant that I didn't continue them. So I would play on and off, and I was quite a sporty kid, I suppose. So I played a lot of football, I played quite a lot of cricket, I even had a season playing rugby, um, and then golf was always kind of a drop-in, drop-out of type approach. And then I played it again, I would say on and off throughout my twenties, but was mainly playing football and over the most of the months I was there, but I'd always wanted to get more involved in golf, but where I was growing up and where I was living at the time, it's a very expensive sport to get involved in. And then we moved to Norfolk 12 years ago. Uh, and one of the things I said to my wife at the time was, when we move up here, I want to join a golf club. It's much more affordable around here. I want to be able to play golf at least once a week. So it was starting to get to the point where I was going to finish playing football and I felt like I needed something to basically get me out of the house um, and give me something to focus on because I'd had that constant of playing football all the way from six or so five or six up until I was well when I finished playing when I was about 32 33 so that's where I really started to get more into my golf when we moved to Norfolk joined a, uh, a course not too far away from here called Wenton Valley which was just around the corner from where we were living at the time not the best course not the best club I would say it was more of a, a cheap resort course I would say but it was quite easy just to rock up. It was never that busy, so you could just rock up and play whenever you wanted, which was good for me because in the evenings, I don't like doing the first tea time normally, so you should feel privileged that I um, sorted that for us. <laughs> just because I don't like the course being busy because I like to be able to come out and just relax and do my own thing. You know, if I'm struggling with a specific type of shot, I want to be able to chuck another ball down and have another hit it. And then when you come and play in the evenings, usually there's not really many people around for you to for, for that to worry But that was certainly my kind of beginnings. I would have to thank my brother for getting me um, mm. involved to start with. And obviously we play a fair bit. Um, I haven't played for a little while with him, but we do play a fair bit normally. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, like you say, I, I do know your brother, Matt. And, and we've, well, you, me and him have known each other for a number of years now. And mm -hmm. we'll, we'll get on to that shortly. But uh, yeah, there's something I didn't know about him that uh, he worked in a golf club. But um, so I think you touched on something there. I get the impression that golf for you or were you 
seem to feel most relaxed playing it is playing it on your own or going out so yes i do enjoy playing with the guys but actually i, I prefer doing that on a, a concentrated basis i would say so when we go away for a weekend or i have a golf trip with the boys that's mm. when i have the most fun when i'm playing with others but other than that i like the solitary confinement of being a golfer on my own basically in an evening and just being alone with my thoughts and mm. listening to a podcast as I go around or you know maybe sometimes I listen to a bit of music with my headphones in and uh, and that kind of thing just to kind of take me away from the general yeah. noise that's there. I can't say I've, I mean I, I'm with you and I my enjoyment at golf certainly or the arenas in which I enjoy playing golf are certainly on my own but never had headphones in and listened to stuff before do, do you not find that interferes with your swing thoughts or your or uh, that's probably not a bad thing <laughs> let's be honest how many times have we stood over a ball and thought christ i don't know what i'm doing here yeah i don't feel like i'm set up right i did it today but yeah but you I say that say. but actually today you stepped away from the that time but the, anyway the, the 15 shot. other times in the round i didn't and i hit yeah. a terrible shot afterwards right there are times where i like to be just in silence and just listening to nature and it helps me feel a bit grounded i think if i'm walking around in an evening i'm a appreciating the environment that i'm in because the golf courses are beautiful places as well right like if you if you go out and look at when you play decent ones or when you play half decent ones visually they're very pretty right mm. and sometimes i like to be able to take stock of the, and think christ look where i am like in a wonderful place mm. there's birds singing the sun's going down or whatever it might be it looks incredible around here so sometimes i like to not have anything in my ear but i often find that i can overthink my golf when i'm not distracted if that makes sense. So yeah. I like having, like, I listen to a lot of comedy podcasts and things like that, which help me just sort of nice. mosey around my round. Well, you talk there about overthinking your golf. And actually what I've enjoyed about today is I have a tendency often when I'm playing at a new course, especially, I will research the course within an inch of its life before I arrive there. <laughs> so I've mapped out the stroke index where my shots are being gained and lost. And like I've already decided, I've kind of mapped out what I want the first hole to look like in terms yeah, of sure. where I'm going to hit it. And I mean, it, more often than not, it doesn't end up that way. Oh, yeah. But I've not even planned beyond the first hole. That's yeah. the trouble, you know? Yeah, so yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. but I think I do obsess about, yeah, I don't know. So today, for example, having not played golf in or this is the first round i've played in quite a while quite a number of months now i guess my what i liked was we turned up here quite quite casual and quite relaxed which i think really actually helped me because the other thing as well is when i'm coming along and already thinking about we're doing this podcast today mm -hmm. and it's one of the early episodes and i've got a bit of anxiety about that and mm -hmm. things and also uh, i find it, i can find it awkward going out with randoms yeah sure but Again, the, the guy that we went out today with, happened which to happened, happened, guy, to be, yeah. happened to be a really decent guy. Yeah, yeah. But I must admit, like, I've not always had that experience when you get paired up and it's like, it's a bit small talk and it's kind of, yeah, I mean, standing over that first tee today, really all I was just thinking was just enjoy this, commit to this shot, commit to every shot, don't overthink it and just wherever the ball goes, keep an eye on it, find it, go up, hit it and keep going. So do you find similar? When you're playing your golf, are you quite a thinker when you... Yeah, I don't like to try and analyse my, my golf a huge amount. I want to try and understand what I'm doing wrong. I think some of the... Because I play quite a lot on my own, I can... Like, if I don't hit decent drives, for example, right, I know that if I'm not going to hit decent drives early on in the round, I'm going to struggle for the rest of the round. So if I don't hit my first drive how I want it, if I'm playing in anything that's remotely competitive, so even if it's a weekend away with the boys where there's a bit of money on the line or whatever it might be, right? Yeah. 
if I hit my first two drives poorly, I won't get my driver out of my bag again. I have to get to a point where I just won't just persist with poor shot after poor shot. Mm. Whereas when I'm on my own, I'm thinking, I need to keep hitting this till I get it right. And at that point, it then becomes not about my round and how I'm scoring. It becomes around what am I actually learning about what I'm doing? What What's the feeling of why I'm hitting this wrong? Am mm. I casting over the top? Am I too closed on the on the way down? Or whatever it might be, that's where my, my head's at. So I'm not thinking about kind of the overall round. I'm thinking about that next shot is the thing that I need to think, okay, or or not necessarily the next shot, the same shot, put another ball down, try and do it properly this time. So I think that's that's kind of where I, how I get round my round of golf. I'm just taking it kind of one bit at a time. Mm. You definitely helped me today though with, uh, there was an occasion, I don't know if you remember, where I just flubbed a chip mm. and I was about to walk up and hit it almost instantly with the, the same very club. same club. And you were like, you don't want that club. <laughs> get, change it. get the granddad chipper out and get the <laughs> get the hybrid. And then sure enough, Stuck it to with a stuck it foot. like a gimme. So, but it does suggest to me that you are you're very conscious of and in touch with kind of these things, like the men, the mental side of golf. I mean, without being too philosophical about well, it, but yeah. so, you know, you. I think it's also about recognizing where you've got strengths and where you've got weaknesses, right? I know that I struggle if I'm chipping around the green and I've got a bit rough in the way of me. I know that I can often, if I've got too lofted a club, I can duff. The chip. So more often than not, I'm much better off getting an eight or a nine iron and just playing a putting stroke and just bumping it up, letting it run out. Mm. Right? That's that's what I, rather than trying to fly somewhere all the way to the hole, I just don't need to do that. No. Um, and the amount of times I've got myself into that situation where I've hit a poor one and then gone to hit, the lie has completely changed. Right. So I'm out of the rough. I'm on the fringe. I'm annoyed that I've only just made it to the fringe, and I think to myself, I'll just hit it. And I'm like, what? Well, no. What are you doing? You don't just hit it. You need to step away a little bit. Yeah. Is this the right club to be hitting this next shot? No, actually, I don't need it. I can get my granddad chipper out and <laughs> hit my little, just play a putting stroke with my hybrid. And play the percentages, play. basically. Yeah. Don't try and play the hero shots. Yeah. You know, don't I mean, try and be I, a hero. I, I won't lie. There are times when I do like playing the hero shots. Like the, um, I, I play with a, another lad here, Steve, and we always joke about playing a floppy doppy doodah, like a Phil Mickelson yeah, style yeah, yeah. flop, right? Yeah. So I, I always try those occasionally they come off mm. sometimes i scull them through the back of the group. there were a few occasions today where you gave me on course commentary of the thought pros i'm gonna right watch this now i'm gonna thread <laughs> this thing right between these two bunkers I, I bet you know i just let you go through your process and i enjoyed it you know it was it was good you've got to be confident with this you stuff, do right? you so. do you do so right we, we've talked a bit about we both have an enjoyment of solitary confinement and playing golf on our mm -hmm. own but i think Let's tell the story to the listener of how you and I met. And so do you want to talk a bit about, introduce the golf tournament that we met at? Yes. So, I mean, this started quite humble beginnings, I would say. So I think there were only 12 of us that originally went on this. So a lad, a bunch of lads that I used to play football with when I was a, a younger man, I would say. Um, we stopped playing football together. We all went... You're still a fairly young man, aren't you? I mean, how old are you now? 41. 41? Um, yeah, it's old enough. All right. When we finished playing football, we still wanted to be able to go out and catch up and do stuff. And these are, these are guys that I've known since I was sort of 16 years old, right? So I've known them for an awfully long time. And we played golf casually, I would say. But we thought, well, um, Alan, our friend Alan, um, decided to set up a tournament, which was kind of like a Ryder Cup format, which we played in the probably the, one of the crappiest courses I've ever played in, <laughs> in the UK in a place called Cretanen in Crettingham in Suffolk. Which was right, great for me because it was like an hour away from my house. But where I grew up, all of those guys, boys are based in Surrey. So a bit more of a trek for them. But 
we set that up and there was 12 of us, I think, the first year. Crappy lodges, rubbish clubhouse, food was all right. I think this is where the... Were you there when we did the, the boys would go and get the Donner Kebab pizzas? Mm, yeah, I think... I must have come a lot... When, what year did it start? Do you remember? I feel like I came a lot... Well, what was the second or third iteration? It'll be 10 it. years this year, wouldn't yeah. it? So it'll be tw- uh, 2014. I feel I was around at least for one of the Donner Kebab pizzas. Yeah, you must have been. Yeah. You must have been there for one of those. But it was exactly what we needed, right? Because the quality of golf that we were pr- producing was not great what, what we needed in terms of doner kebab pizza or no, the god no, no maybe i don't not. want anyone seeing doner kebab no. pizza to be no. perfectly honest but no I, I'm the, the but it was what you need in terms of golf facilities yes. and the type yeah. of setup because yeah, okay. we weren't uh, i think there was only a few of us that were members of golf clubs anywhere again there's a lot of casual players i think just to give some context our friend luke um, mm. was i think he would played off 26 that first year mm. and what did he um, play off today i fast seen... forward how many years Seven or eight yeah, years? Yeah, seven or eight years. And he was, um, I think he's a single single digit handicap now. He's a mm. good player and he's probably better than that as well. So he's, um, but he'd never really played golf before. Again, this comes down to the football conversation. He irritated the hell out of me when we were, when we were playing football because he was probably one of the most talented football players I'd ever seen. One of um, these guys naturally good at anything. Yeah, he, he could go and do any sport and you're like, <laughs> Love him to I bits, don't even think we'll edit this but yeah, 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 that's fine. Right. I think I've told it to his face yeah, a number yeah. of times. Yeah. We've been on um, had a few drinks, but um yeah, so many varying levels, but no one I don't think anyone was better than maybe a 12 11, uh, 13 12 11 handicap something like that at that time. Yeah. And then subsequently Alan decided to expand it and mm. brought in some work colleagues, which I believe is where um you came in. That's right. And we went to I think we went to 18 numbers one year. I don't think we got to 24 that year. I think the 24, when we got to 24 or 12 aside, proper Ryder Cup format. Mm. That was when we went to Dorset somewhere. Well, Dorset, was it Devon? It might have been Devon yeah. somewhere, wasn't it? Yeah. So I, was, I flew into Exeter from Norwich that year. Did you? Yeah, flew in. There's a flight that goes from yeah, Norwich to was. Exeter. I don't think they, they exist anymore. But I flew from Dorset to Exeter and then I got... Oh, you live the high life, don't I know, you? yeah. I couldn't, but, well, it was much easier than driving it, right? Because you imagine trying to get from Norwich to... Yeah, fair enough. All the way around the M25 at the air. That wasn't for me. So yeah, yeah. Um, that was the first time we had 24 of us. Uh, it was the Asprey Manor place. Oh, yeah. And it was wet. Yeah. And it was not enjoyable. I, d- I missed that year. And then Sounds we like discovered a- Dorset Country Club mm. place, which is the one with the big lodges, that, mm. which is where we... Swedish-style lodges, yeah. Where we went for the kind of the last sort of four or five years, I think, which was good fun, right? Because we, the golf had started to get a little bit better. Like The standard of golf was getting better we were getting we would still have a mix right so we'd still have well we had some handicap the guys that were on a three four five six handicaps so some good golfers there um and then we'd have the occasional guy who was playing off 28 but had never played golf before in their life um i can't remember the chat's name it's one of alan's friends but who was brilliant Ricky, was it? yeah yeah yeah, Ricky, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and he, uh, on the first tee absolutely nailed a drive off yeah. the first tee about 250 yards down a fairway and there yeah. was all of us cheering him on it was absolutely brilliant yeah and that's a, you know that's a better quality course. It was still not so good that we felt out of place, mm. despite our um, varying abilities. But um, it was tricky enough to be challenging for the the good golfers as well. Yeah, what? Um, well, you've made me reflect on a number of things that because it's been going for a number of years now, and as you say, it's going to steadily grow and more. You know, so as you say, I was introduced into it through our mutual friend Alan, and then in time. I've started introducing people into mm-hmm. it. And to a man, every single person that I've introduced or I see is new to it or over the years, it's just like everyone loves it. They yeah. talk it. It's, yeah. the, it's one of the 
first things that they look forward to in a new year on mm -hmm. the calendar or whatever. And from my perspective, what I've come to really appreciate about it is we don't take ourselves too seriously oh. in relation to the golf. It's all about just having fun and a laugh and catching up with the guys. Mm -hmm. and, and actually, whilst golf is the kind of the main event, if you like, there's plenty that goes around, goes on around the, the outside of it as well in terms of watching any live football that's on on the weekend together mm -hmm. or we play cards or, mm -hmm. you know, we st and it, in the past, it's also been on Masters weekend. Yeah. You know, we've come in from the day's golf and watched the Masters on the TV and mm -hmm. watched how real golfers actually play. Yeah, how it should be played. Yeah, should be played. <laughs> For me, I, alongside the enjoyment I get out of golf in terms of playing it on my own, for example, I think the other type of golf I really enjoy is, is that. It's like the camaraderie with a group of people. Mm -hmm. And as we'll get to, to talking about a bit more in this conversation, I think the relationship between many of us is, I think, new friendships have been formed and guys that have never met prior to that particular weekend. There's several instances now of them getting together, going mm -hmm. out for drinks or food or whatever, and mm -hmm. their partners getting to know each other and stuff. But yours and I's relationship has taken on a, a deeper meaning, I think, in the in the last year, especially. Mm -hmm. I think we should go to that now, if that's okay, okay yeah, with you. Sure. So do you want to maybe start by, can you share your family story with us? Yeah, sure. So um, I said mentioned earlier that we moved to Norfolk 12 years ago. That was off the back of my first son being stillborn. Um, my wife is originally from Norfolk and I think I said to you yesterday, one of the things they talk about is, um, you shouldn't make any life changing decisions. And at the time we were living down in Surbiton in, in Surrey, which is around where I'm from. Um, I got offered my, the job to go and do the work that was based in Norwich the day that Dylan was born. Obviously I didn't answer my phone. It went to voicemail and I didn't pick it up until two days later. And my wife, Bryony was in absolutely no condition to make any sort of decisions as you can imagine at that time, she was distraught and all over the place. Uh, and I was to a certain extent, but I was, I kind of was in autopilot because with her being kind of how she was emotionally and physically and all that kind of stuff, I went into, I need to look after her type mode, which is probably a pretty natural thing to do for most men that find themselves in that situation, I would say. Mm. We benefit from baby loss in that way because we have got something to focus on. So we can make sure that, you know, our wives are, our partners are, are comfortable or are fed, washed, basic stuff like that, that, you know, Bryony wasn't getting out of bed for doing certain things, which is, I think is uh, totally understandable given the circumstances. Um, but I just made the decision that we were going to move so I could get Bryony closer to her mum and dad, get Bryony closer to her friends uh, and people that could help support, not just her, but me to support her as well, I suppose it's probably a selfish way of, and the move the here was after losing Dylan. Yeah, so well, I accepted that job. So we lost Dylan in the May in 2012. I accepted that job the same month, started it a few weeks later. Fortunately, my um, boss from my previous job is also one of my very close friends. And sadly, he had also been through something very similar. He, um, he had uh, twin girls a few years before, um, one of which died shortly after she was born. So he was... So, I mean, he ha he was, and he is to this day, one of the, you know, one of the most supportive people I've ever mm. had the privilege to call a friend. Um, and when I said to him, look, and we had a great working relationship, we had lots of fun. Um, we had each other's backs, there was a lot of loyalty there, which is why we're still friends to this day, I think. But when I said to him, look, I've got an opportunity to go, I feel like I need to 
get Bryony out of where we are, get her back. He was like, I totally understand. He's like, there's no, not going to be any hard feelings about this. It's, it's important that you do what's right for you and your family, which was quite refreshing for, um, because I don't have, I don't think I've had many people that I've worked for that have treated me in that way or mm. seen me as just a, a number or whatever it might be that you work when you work in those kind of, um, environments. So yeah, so we, I, we didn't move up straight away. I think we moved up in the June and I started working originally in London for this company, but the role was on site at our company and it's a recruitment role on site, um, for a video. So I had to live with her mum and dad for the first month whilst we found a house, um, which was challenging, I would say not so much for me. I thought it was all right. Cause I was getting out of the house every day to go to work. I was having lunches made for me to take to work with me as well. My mum would make me a lunch and all that kind of stuff. But I know Bryony struggled a bit with that because whether it was, um, I don't think, I, I, don't, I wouldn't say her mum was fussing over her, but she, she was obviously trying to make sure her, that Bryony was okay. But Bryony just didn't want any attention. She didn't want, she just wanted to wallow where she was. So I think she found that quite frustrating. But then we eventually found a house and moved. And then that's when I moved, um, joined the first golf club I mentioned earlier, which was like five minutes up the road. So yeah, so my son Dylan would have been 12 this May. Mm. And then in 2022, we Ten, had... 10th of May, right? Yeah, 10th of May, yeah. Would Which ironically is year. also my boss's, my old boss's birthday as well. So it was his, so it would have been his 40th birthday that year. And mm. we've been planning to go away and all that kind of stuff, but obviously. And uh, when we, in 2022, we had the charity ball that we raised, Bryony's raised £50,000 for Tommy's um, yeah. since Dylan was born and we had a do you want to see a bit about Tommy's what do they so they're a stillbirth and miscarriage charity they do a lot of research into why stillbirth occurs why miscarriages occur and things like that and um, a lot of the money that we've done has gone towards basically helping other families not go through what we've been through with that yeah with that loss because we it's not just a stillbirth she's had a miscarriage and we've had to terminate for medical reasons for another another baby who wasn't developing in the right way so we've you know we've struggled with having children and uh tommy's have been brilliant because not only do they obviously the money that they use from the, the fundraising is put to good use but actually they're supporting of Bryony over that time and me to a certain extent like Bryony's the one who does all the fundraising I'm, I'm kind of a her support network i suppose mm. so when she's training for a marathon or she's training to do um a two mile open water swim or whatever that obviously takes time so or uh, and resource so I would be the one that would go out and meet her halfway through her training runs to replenish her water and give her something to eat so she could keep going. Or I would obviously be a dad to my, my son who is here while she was doing that, keep him entertained and all that kind of stuff because it is quite a commitment when you're going through those yeah. things. The actual run or the swim is a culmination of all of the hours of practice and um, preparation that she puts in and that's where the real sort of sacrifice is for when you're doing those types of things. So I can never take any credit for any of the fundraising she's done, but I think she is probably, I might be speaking for her here, but she's probably thankful of the fact that she didn't have to worry about being a mum at that time. She could just yeah. go out and do the runs to practice and stuff to get her training regime in. Yeah. Well, you know, firstly, thanks for sharing with us about Dylan. And if I may say, you know, I think from my perspective and now having been through very similar loss, I, I've now come to really appreciate what, first and foremost, appreciate what it's like mm. for what you and Bryony and your family have been through, first and foremost. Uh, secondly, I'd say I've got a huge amount of admiration and respect for the work that you've both done. I mean, as you say, Bryony has very clearly done a power of work in so many things for charities like Tommy's. And, but then 
both of you, but especially you, because I, I had the privilege of meeting Bryony yesterday, and I really loved the, the the chat that we had together in your house about you guys giving me that space to speak about Innes, and, and actually just knowing, actually, that I'm talking to people who you didn't, you didn't judge anything that I said, or I didn't feel judged anything no. that I said, and I'm not necessarily saying that which is quite surprising because she is quite judgy. <laughs> Do you want to leave that in or shall we edit that? I don't know. <laughs> she won't listen to this anyway. No, <laughs> Cheers, Bryony. You know, you gave us the impression yesterday you were really, really keen for us to very support. No, I don't. You don't. But I say that in a way which is not to suggest that when I speak to people about my loss and grief, that haven't been through something similar are judging me. But frankly, when you're talking with people who have been through something very similar or the same or whatever, you know, it's just that I felt much more comfortable being able to do that with, mm. with you. As a man mm. and as men, we know that typically we're not, we as a collective, mm. men aren't, aren't brilliant at necessarily talking about feelings or mm. mental health or whether it's grief in this case. What are the lessons that you have learned through this loss and this grief first of all there's more to life than yourself i think it's fair to say and brian and i've talked about this a lot over the years i don't think we really liked each other that much when we got married i think we loved each other but i think we were going through the motions a little bit mm. and to be honest with you i was a bit of a selfish prick when we were when we'd got well even before we got married you know i was not i didn't really take much consideration for how she was feeling about life in general really I say I'd say um you know she'd moved down from Norfolk to Surrey to be with me and I would go out with work until two in the morning on the weekdays and stuff like that she's not really and well she you know she hadn't really got tons of friends down here that she can just go around their houses and things like that so well actually when I when the stuff happened with Dylan um it made me kind of re-evaluate my priorities and to see how strong she was made me realize how much I should admire her and how much of a hero she was to me for, mm. for going through what she went through with such grace and how do I describe it? It was she just carried herself in such a graceful manner through all of that shit. Yes, she had times where she was in a dark place, right? Mm. Um, yes, she had times where she didn't want to be near me or near anyone, or you know, she did. There were there were times, that, but I can't. I, I don't blame her for that. To be honest, um, you know, that's a natural reaction to the stuff we were going through it just made me kind of reevaluate that actually there is more to life than just what i want to do mm. and that i need to refocus my attention on making sure my wife has everything she needs and everything she wants and i actually want her to be able to enjoy spending time with me and i want to enjoy spending time with her and i think in fairness on the flip side of that it's fair to say that she was quite a serious character before dylan was born she felt like she needed to control quite a lot of things, which may have been why I didn't want to come home at times because I was worried that I was going to be told told off, basically, which is a bizarre thing to think about, isn't it? It's my mum would tell me off and my wife, but I mean the wild wives do tell us off, but that's that's um you know, that's a different thing. But I think when she lost Dylan, it made her realise that she cannot control everything. So she had to relinquish that control a little bit. And actually, weirdly, she laughed more afterwards. Well, not immediately afterwards. Obviously there was a period of time where she didn't laugh at anything, nothing was amusing, but she started to take herself a little less seriously. I started to pay a little bit more attention to her. Um, and I think that helped draw us closer together. And I think it's fair to say that we would definitely consider each other to be best mates now. Mm. Like we have such a lot. And, you know, it's given that we also both work from home in the same room 
and we have done for the last four years and we still get on like an absolute house on fire you know mm. and we have times where we get a bit tetchy with one another and all that kind of stuff as most married couples do but if we do it's gone and we've we, we've kind of moved on from that so the, the main thing for me with all of what we've been through is you start to understand what is important to you mm. and me going out with my mates whilst it might be fun it's not really that important um, not that I'm saying I don't enjoy going out with my friends, I do, but I don't need to be doing it every week. Mm. I need to be spending more time being a bit more considerate and spending time with my family because they're the ones that are going to be with me throughout everything Yeah, that goes on. So I think that's probably the key land for, for me with that. Yeah, it's um, fair to say that baby loss and the grief that you experienced with it, uh, certainly my experience has been a very complex one. Mm. And it's good, I think, that you're being so open in relation to the challenges and difficulties that surface in a relationship Mm -hmm. after you've been through something like that. What's been your own experience of talking about Dylan, talking about your son, you know, speaking with people who may not have been through the same and may sometimes not know what to say or... Yeah, it's it's been an interesting road through that, I would say, because I'm not one for shying away from stuff like I find it really difficult when people say to me how oh, when I talk to them about Jensen and they say oh you know have you got any other kids I, I sometimes struggle because what I want to say to them is yes actually I do mm. one is in uh, heaven whether you believe in heaven or not one we believe is in heaven mm. and we've had two others that were very young or you know were um, very small when they when they went in the miscarriages um, but sometimes it's not really always appropriate to to go down that route but I do always like even to the point where um, I had a conversation on Friday with my boss's boss's boss. It's the first day we've just moved into his area, so he's doing like the rounds with, and having regular catch-ups with everyone. And he asked me about my background, um, and I told him like when I worked at Aviva and all that kind of stuff. And I said, he said, what took you from um, where you were in Surrey to Norwich? So I said, well, at the time, my son was stillborn. And I could see that he was kind of shocked with what I was saying. Mm-hmm. But actually, he was quite receptive to it. I mean, maybe it's his, I don't know why he's probably good at his job is because he's able to deal with those things. But it, it's interesting to see people's reactions when I tell them. I'm not going to not tell them because it's an important part of my life. And it's not like I was saying that I would, I always talk about it because I don't. But if people ask me about my story, about why I am where I am, why I live where I live, all that kind of stuff, that is a, the main part of why we moved to Norfolk. Mm. It's so that I could get Brian closer to her mum and dad. And, you know, we could start to, I mean, we'd been looking to, because what we wanted to do was start a family here because we can afford to buy a house around here and all that kind of stuff as well, granted. But if there's that um, sliding doors moment, isn't there? And that is a big part of why we moved to, to Norfolk was because of Dylan. And I, I can only thank him for that. So I love it here. As you know, I talk about this place all the time. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it is a challenge because it's, it's about, I don't like making people feel uncomfortable. Mm. But then equally, if they're going to ask questions about me, I'm going to tell them the truth. Right. So, but I think you have periods of time where, and again, I think we sort of brushed over this yesterday, and I think you said it to me, is you expect, there are certain people in your life you expect to kind of stand up and be counted when these sorts of things happen. But the truth is, don't always work that way. No. Actually, what you tend to find is the people that are probably on the periphery, they're the ones that are more likely to step into that space and offer you the support you may need. The saddest thing about it is because usually they've experienced something similar. Yeah. Um, yeah. In creating this platform, this podcast, it's it's partly about raising awareness of important issues. Mm-hmm. And 
I'm sure you'd agree with me, Ben, in saying that, um, I mean, baby loss as a subject is, is, is kind of taboo, right? You know, people don't talk about it, or certainly this has been my experience. In the experience of losing a baby, you learn a bunch of stuff about it that you never wish to learn, mm. but you're forced to learn mm. because it happens to you. Um, but I guess, you know, one thing I'd say is, and to this point you've just raised about certain people that in their friends and family network who you might reasonably expect to show up in a certain way and behave in a certain way might not, and that's quite uh, upsetting. But I guess I would say, and I, I'm going to welcome your uh, input to this in a moment, is one of the, you know, for anyone that's listening to this, and if you encounter someone that's just experienced grief or loss or the loss of a loved one, but especially in the context of a baby, mm. I mean, there is no right mm. thing that you can say to anyone, no. first and foremost, and there is no thing that you can say that will take away the, the pain uh, or the loss of the, that that person's experienced. But probably one of the best things I think you can say is just, I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry for your loss. Even saying, I really don't know what to say. Yeah. Because then it gives the person that's actually on the receiving end of all the shit that's happening. Yeah. It gives them an opportunity to steer the conversation because they may not want to talk about it at all. They yeah. may want to talk about something completely different. Yeah. Let's talk about this. Or they may say, this is how I'm feeling. Yeah. And I'm, I'm grateful you brought up this subject of speaking your truth, mm. essentially, because... By the way, I absolutely detest that saying. <laughs> I just want to put that out there, detest it. There is no such thing as your truth. It's the truth. You have an opinion, right? You're saying uh, an opinion. Your truth does not exist. But it is about being genuine with yourself, right? And actually talking about how you feel. And no one can say whether you're right or wrong for feeling that way because that's down to you, how you feel about things. So let's go with that, right? No more you <laughs> your truth. So, okay, speaking the truth. Okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I stand corrected. <laughs> because in promoting this mm. podcast which i have to be honest I, I it kind of feels kind of uncomfortable to mm -hmm. me at this stage like that idea of self-promotion but i think there's a part of it that feels uncomfortable because i don't know if you somehow experienced this in your loss of, of dylan see but me introducing this podcast to people and talking about it and the concept is i almost feel an urge to say oh well i lost my son last year kind of thing mm -hmm. and it's like mm -hmm. that's a very important part i mean innis is my inspiration for mm -hmm. doing this mm -hmm. but it's how's your experience been of almost getting comfortable with yourself in talking about dylan because you can't control how other people are going to react no. how they're going to feel and but... i think that's one of the advantages that we have as men is mm. that we care less about what people think of us generally mm. i would say certainly than the women I, in our lives i mean i would challenge that on the basis that i care deeply too much i think about what other people potentially think. but yeah. then maybe that's because i've been hardened to it because it happened to me 12 years ago maybe in 10 years time you may yeah. be less worried about what people are going to think about you saying this stuff yeah. but there are times where if you have an opinion on something, because I know you're quite an opinionated chap, you're not going to hold back on having that conversation. Respectfully someone. opinionated. Respectfully opinionated. Okay, yeah, but okay. either, but you know what I mean. Like, so with this particular subject, yes, I understand the insecurity of you wanting to not go out and worry about what people might say. I get yeah. that. I get that. Yeah. But there are plenty of other things in your life that you have a view on that you will happily say, and you don't care whether someone disagrees with you or not. Mm. And that's, maybe this, it might not be a male thing, maybe it's just in my experience, but certainly Bryony cares more about what people think than I do. Mm. Always has done. I'm just who I am. And if people don't like me, that's fine. I, I, yeah. I'm not going to be everyone's cup of tea. That's, yeah. that's not a problem. Yeah. But I actually also find that the more I can try and be genuine, the easier it is for people to understand whether they want to engage with me or not. And then mm. less time I waste with people who don't want to engage with me. 
Yeah. And I think when you start to talk about baby loss, yes, it's difficult for people, but it's, I've got two friends here in Norwich, my two best mates here in Norwich. I can talk to them about any of that stuff. That is key to me because they don't shy away from it. They're receptive of it. They understand that they're not there. They understand that they don't get it. Mm. And that's all right. I don't need them to get it. No. I just need to be able to talk about it occasionally. Not all the time, as I said. It's not something that we talk about regularly. But there are things that we talk about where we've talked about um, the decision for Brian and I not to, not to try for any more children because of the losses we've been through and all that kind of stuff. You know, that was harder for me, perhaps, than it was for Brian because Brian had been through the physical and emotional stuff, whereas I'd only really been through the emotional side of it. Mm. Didn't make any difference to me physically what she was going through. Emotionally, it was difficult for me, but realising that Jensen's going to be an only child, it mm -hmm. wasn't the easiest thing for me to digest. However, I think it's the right thing. But I needed to be able to mull that over in my head to get to the conclusion that, yes, this is the right thing. I can't put my wife through any of this stuff again. Mm. I'm not prepared to do it. And mm. actually, I'd much rather Jensen had two happy parents that got on well so that he has a healthy upbringing. I mean, he might turn out to be a complete nightmare, but we will have given him the best opportunities to not be a serial killer, I suppose, which is the key. Well, he's into... Let's talk about Jensen. Jensen's, what, seven? Eight. Eight, eight nine? yeah. He's, he's eight. eight. He'll be nine later this year. And he's a member of this golf club? No, he's not a member yet. No, he's, not. he's going to be joining the academy in the summer if they've okay. got space for him. So I started bringing him down here in around September time, got him his own golf clubs over the summer, mm. just to see how he got on with it, really, because he's not the sportiest kid in the world. He quite likes his cricket. Obviously, he plays cricket in the summer, but he's not really into his football, not really into rugby or all that kind of stuff. He's actually quite musical. He likes, he's learning the drums at school, Has likes his drama stuff. So he was in... Um, had a singing part, a singing solo part in the nativity and things like that. So, you know, he's got quite a lot of confidence when it comes to being on stage, but he's just not not a particularly sporty kid, which is a bit weird for both of us because we were both quite sporty when we were children. She did a lot of athletics and played a bit of hockey. And then I was, obviously, as I mentioned earlier, played a lot of football and cricket stuff. So um, not that I'm disappointed. I'm not disappointed that he doesn't play a lot of football because I don't really like the game anymore. If I watch it on TV, I'm, I think it's... The golden era of football for me was the 90s and the early 2000s. I think that was when it, it, it had peaked. And actually, if I watch it now, I just get fed up with it. Why? So like, oh, VAR and all that kind of mm, yeah. nonsense. Okay, um, yeah. Less said about that, Ben. Yeah. I thought and you were going to get into the whole commercial, too much money in it. and then, Yeah, I mean, that, that's, a, that's also a big part of it, right? I think the, the money that's gone into that sport has effectively ruined it. If you think about, you know, I mean, it'd be really interesting to see what happens with Manchester City with the financial fair play stuff. Um, I hope they get chucked out of the league because you can't... 115 charges yeah. is just an insane... We do love and welcome any Man City fans to yeah. this podcast. I'm a guest, I, so you, yeah, you have I, to say that. I, yeah. I, no, fairness, I don't have to see it. I choose to see it. Fine, okay, yeah, fine. Okay. <laughs> so I, I don't dislike Manchester City fans. Much in the way you choose to say speaking the truth rather than yeah. your truth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so yeah Just yeah, a yeah. potato, <laughs> potato. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, fair enough. But I don't have any problems with Manchester City fans. I have a problem with the way the club is run. You can't have a billionaire owner come in and then suddenly they've become one of the top earning clubs in the world despite the fact they can't sell their stadium out. doesn't make sense, <laughs> does it? You know, uh, it doesn't make sense. Anyway, let's not go down that route. No, no, that's fine. Um, I'm not yeah. bitter about it at all. But no. anyway, so yeah, so I'm not, I would like him to play golf because I, I want to be able to uh, be in a position where when we get older, we can play golf together. I think that would be a lovely thing to be able to do with him. I think... The, he would benefit quite a lot from the academy because there's a lot of kids in this academy so he could potentially make some good mates to go out and play with. I like the idea, as I said earlier, I like the idea of him coming down here on a Saturday afternoon, him going off to do 
whatever and we can when he's a bit older we can just leave him here to enjoy some time with his friends and then pick mm. him up a bit later on. I think that's, you know, that's... And he's starting to... His introduction to the game is he's quite young. You yeah. started playing when you were how old? Probably about his age as well. Oh, was it? Yeah, yeah okay. I think so. But yeah, he's starting was. early and he's got every opportunity to be a better golfer than you, which is, you know, it's the bar is not very... Yeah, the bar's not very high, is it? Get so, yeah. Quickly, I think. Yeah, good, good. <laughs> that also means he'd be better than you, though. Yeah, well, that's not hard either, to be perfectly honest. I, I really hope he is. Yeah, and he'll be on like, this podcast in years to come. He'll be giving me yeah. in tips and he'll sort my swing out. <laughs> golf Yourself Healthy is built on the idea that golf is good for you. And certainly for me, it was it's one of the first things I wanted to do when we lost Innes. Would it be a stretch to say for you that, well, how do you feel about golf being good for you? And how, if at all, has it been... How's your relationship with golf changed in any way since you've been? Yeah, golf? I think it has. I think um, if I trying to put this in a kind of like a chronological order, right? I would say that when we lost Dylan, I spent probably a year looking after Bryony. I would say, like making sure she was up and about, she wasn't working and all that kind of stuff. And then we had a the miscarriage sort of six months later, which was probably a mistake for us to try again. But she was in such a weird space I would say that I think she kind of said if we don't have one now I don't think I'm ever going to want another one after after that which is probably the wrong thing for us to do but that's what we did but I think as she mentioned to you yesterday I think she was saying that when she had that miscarriage removed it was the first time she'd ever been under general anesthetic and the she remember I remember her saying to me the next day the last thing I remember thinking about when they were putting me under is I hope I wake up and she said and that was a defining moment for her to realize that actually she did want to carry on She'd been so down and was so such a recluse, didn't want to do anything, didn't want... And I don't think... that I, I wasn't worried about her doing anything silly to herself, mm. but I kind of would have understood, right? Like, if, she, if she'd made any sort of attempt like that. So for her to be able to go under general anaesthetic for the first time and literally say, I hope I wake up, was such a defining moment for her, and it gave her kind of a bit of a, an impetus to kind of change the narrative that she was kind of living um, I would say that's when we got the dog. I sort of said, "Look, it's a bit of a cliche, but maybe we should get a dog." We'd always talked about having a dog. She had dog a dog when she was a kid, and I'd always wanted to have a dog. So uh, we went and got Barney that um, that Christmas. So that was Christmas Eve. She had the um, miscarriage removed. Then I had my thirtieth birthday on the Boxing Day, and then um, New Year's Day we picked up Barney from Skegness. We like to think we rescued him from Skegness. Yeah, we also had... welcome listeners from yeah. Skegness. <laughs> I'm just throwing shade at everyone like this. <laughs> This point in time, yeah, um, and I choose to welcome. I don't have to. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, to be fine, clear, that's yeah. fine. And uh, he, she always talks about him being her rescuer, basically, because he gave her a reason to get up every morning, and he also made me get up at like three a.m. to let him out for a wee when he was a puppy and that kind of stuff. I remember it snowed quite heavily that winter as well, and I remember standing in the garden four in the morning in dressing gown and slippers in a foot of snow, trying to get Barney as a puppy to have a poo before he would come back into the house. That sounds like me and my dog. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's very familiar. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, it is a cliche, but I'm mean, dogs are amazing. Like, um, I think that they give so much more than they take, and uh, yeah, he gave her a reason to get up. And then after three months of training him, I think she started to go a bit stir crazy, and she's like, right, I need to go back to work. Right. So we looked for for a job, and uh, she got a job working for um, Savills, the estate agents, as a like an admin PA type person. And it was only when she started to sort of get back to her, not back to herself, because I was, we're never, you're never going to be the same, are you? But when she, no. st when I started needing to look after her less, that's when I realised I had never really dealt with what we'd been through. And 
so I remember during that year, I had a end of year review with my boss. And at the time, I was quite pleased with what she said. And, and the reason she said it, she wasn't saying anything to be malicious or anything like that. That, that wasn't her intention. She was, she basically said to me, you wouldn't know that you've been through what you've been through in the, in the year that you've worked with us. Your work is great. Everyone gets on with you and no one would know unless you tell them that you'd lost your children. So what mm. she was trying to say is that I was showing a level of professionalism in my work that meant that I could okay, yeah, just kind of carry on. But it's only in hindsight that I think that's probably not a good thing because all I did was bury it. I literally didn't let it impact me at all, didn't deal with it. I always sort of used golf as the escape from dealing with stuff, right? If I was at home and I was having to look after Bryony, every Saturday evening in the summer, I'd go out and play golf that year. So I'd go out and I'd think, yeah, you know, I'm getting away from things, getting away from this. And, and then actually what I would end up doing is thinking about it. And that was how I kind of, along with having some therapy after Bryony went back to work, I, I did get some professional help just to kind of deal with those feelings of emotion, those feelings of trying to get to grips with what had happened, I suppose. But it's actually on the golf courses where I would did the majority of my thinking, mm. right? So all of those times I was in therapy and my therapist would say, when you're thinking about these sorts of things, try and process it in this way or whatever it might have been, whatever thing. That was what I was doing when I was out on the golf course because I was alone with my thoughts. I couldn't escape what had happened to me. I couldn't just think about something different. Your brain don't work that way, does it? And so over that, that following year, I think that's when I started to perhaps deal with it a little bit better, perhaps understand what had happened to me a little, or not to me, but what had happened to us a little better. And to ha just that in itself was therapy for me, right? Um, I could just, I couldn't hide from myself. I had to answer my own questions about why I felt the way I did. Why was I, I remember I, I wrote an article for someone's blog post who was, um, she runs something called the Rainbow Running Club. And I remember finishing as I was writing that, I was like, I couldn't understand. I couldn't really understand. I can't really understand to this day why I felt so numb when Dylan was born. Like, I just didn't feel anything. I didn't feel sad. Obviously, I wasn't happy, but I didn't feel sad. And I, I just couldn't connect with what Bryony had been through on a physical level. And I struggled with it on an emotional level. And maybe it was down to the fact that I obviously, you know, as a man, I didn't carry Dylan. But I just, maybe that was just my way of naturally trying to cope with what was happening which isn't a healthy thing it's not it's not a healthy thing but it's probably more natural for some people than it is for others and for me that was how I dealt with it I just sort of shut myself compartmentalized it just shut it off don't think about it don't deal with it and then just concentrate on Bri that's all you got to do just make sure she's all right which is fine for a period of time but then that compartmentalization starts to edge its way back over to the thing and then yeah that's where the, the wall broke down when I was in playing golf I was just strolling around aimlessly really not even really thinking about what i was doing with a golf ball or anything like that thinking about okay what does this actually mean to me yeah no it's it does sound like a, like you say golf created that space for you yes yeah. to think uh and actually yeah I, reflecting on it now probably that aside the fact i wanted to get out in the golf course because i knew it would give me that soon after losing innis mm. i think it just I had a really grand point to make there and it's completely gone mm -hmm. out of my head, but it'll come back to me. Something I do remember really quite clearly and vividly was I the, the chronology of it now in the timeline of events, I don't quite remember, but I seem mm -hmm. to remember, you, maybe you'll remember, but around the time I think my wife Kim and I had been given the really traumatic news about Innes's, um 
prognosis and basically I was in the car park at my golf club actually on the phone to you because I was mm -hmm. just about to go out on the course and play a few holes and um, you said a number of things to me then which you know the whole conversation really prepared me for what was going to be a really quite horrendous situation was mm -hmm. to go into hospital watch and whilst my son is being you know my my son is going to be born sleeping mm -hmm. he's going to be born dead and a few things you said you said one you know that the silence will be deafening mm -hmm. and I'm grateful to you for saying that because it was mm -hmm. the silence was piercing you know mm -hmm. and it was mm -hmm. But also you said to me that um, and drawing on obviously the experience you've had in supporting Briny over, mm -hmm. you know, since that time was you're going to have to put your mental health on the on the back burner or something mm -hmm. like that. It was yeah. it, it words to that effect. And I have to admit, of all the things that you said to me, that really uh, shocked me or that was very jarring. And I and I say this because I think for quite a long time now, I've been someone who anyone that knows me well knows that I talk openly about my depression my anxiety mm -hmm. and my mental health and things and then mental health generally and so to hear someone say to me yours isn't going to be as priority as someone else's mm -hmm. was somehow like oh shit i don't i don't really want to have to deal with that in a mm -hmm. way but mm -hmm. actually you're right what you say about what our wives partners go through when they because the woman carries the woman mm -hmm. There are things that they experience which we don't physically, mm -hmm. right? And hormonally and, as well, right? And if you think about it, it's, yeah. it's, you know, their body is expecting them to have yeah. a baby to look after, that kind of thing as well. So. And I think you've touched on it already. Is I think the message here is once you experience this sort of loss, baby loss, you know, it's, it's support as a man. There is definitely a, a role for you there in, in just being as supportive as you can to... Mm your wife through the absolute spectrum of emotions that she will go through. You'll both go through. There are some very ugly feelings that come up, mm. aren't there, mm. in that situation. But I think it's important as well. What I didn't want you to think as I was saying, you put your mental health on pause forever, right? It's, no. it's just about that period of time so that when, and you know when it happens, right? When they start, to, when the, the ladies in our life start to get back towards yeah being functional again right that's basically what it is it's about them being part of society again and all that kind of stuff that's when you can then start to think all right well I, maybe i need to sort my own shit out really i need to start having that self-reflection on that kind of stuff and i think that's something that it took me a while to realize that actually i did need to think about how it was impacting me because i think where i'd put my own mental health on kind of pause i would say i don't think i ever really wanted to unpause it Mm. I would have quite happily carried on and not dealt with it. But the reality is yeah. that would not have been a healthy way of doing well, things. And the questions start to come into your brain when you are in those periods of reflection, which you do a lot of in golf, right? You, you spend a lot of time, especially if you're playing in the evenings on your own and all that kind of stuff, you spend a lot of time just you on your own, just with your own thoughts. And that's where they start niggling at you. And that's when you start thinking, actually, I've got some serious issues here and I need, <laughs> I need to deal with these things. Well, I, I love the way you've described that what golf's given you in that respect. I think this is what I was trying to, the point I was going to make before, and uh, it still hasn't come back to me, by the way, and I don't think it will between now and the end of the conversation. But You can add it in. Yeah, I can. Yeah, Let's just do a pause. Well, add it in Let's in pause post. it for one second. Yeah. No, you can add it in. <laughs> it's saying it's created that space for you to, to think to think without boundaries and yeah. and th I think it's come back. I think Ooh, that I think that go. was the point. I was make. If this isn't very good. <laughs> no, I actually I I think it's quite me it's distinctly mediocre. Uh, okay, but um, no, it's it's that actually golf for 
me uh, in the the sort of the immediate aftermath after losing Innes had to be on my own. Mm. It couldn't really be with other people, mm. I don't think, because what I was experiencing was, as we've talked about already, anyone that I would go out and play golf with didn't know how to talk to you Correct. or yeah. engage with you. And I was very much in a place stuff. of like, you speak to me and my life revolves around the loss of my son at the moment. Mm. So whether you like it or not, mm. I'm going to be telling you about mm. it. Mm. You're going to act awkward about it. I'm going to feel crappy because yeah. I don't feel yeah. let down and resentful. And especially if you, you. if you play with people regularly yeah. as well, right, who know you and would have yeah. known what was going on. Yeah. I mean, the advantage I had when we moved to North, no one knew who I, yeah. I was, so I could go around without... Mm. having to say hello to people or any of that sort of stuff anyway right so yeah. and i also made the the mistake you talk about making mistakes by the way and and sort of wrong decisions in relation to trying to conceive again and i just for what it's worth i i think you're being hard on yourselves about maybe it so much as maybe. your brain just scrambled basically. yeah yeah I, I don't know if there are right or wrong decisions that you can make in in what is such a disorientating time but it leads me to talking about I didn't help myself at the time in my relationship with golf where I got myself onto the board at my golf club yeah. and all of a sudden just became this person to the members at my golf club where like you actually approached had to interact me. with people. Yeah, 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 yeah. I forced myself into an interact. Yeah, I think it, it was. But I think there's an important message that lies in here as well, which we're both touching on, which is kind of we pursue certain interests or goals or aspirations and we make we go after things after mm. a loss because it's a way of healing mm. Mm. but actually you kind of you just have to go with it because some of the decisions that you make will end up being really inspired but others like i think the instance i talk about of going on the board at my golf club within about two weeks of losing my son was a probably not the right thing to do no it was however bit, it was a bit well, of a misplaced kind yeah. of like and as know. long as you can learn something from it right yeah that's a bit of a cliche but um i think even when we talk about we talked about what i learned from the dylan situation and i mentioned obviously about what brian learned from the that and then obviously the subsequent miscarriage as well after that we have both our relationship has improved exponentially since then yeah and i often get asked the way i don't I, maybe often get but i have been asked in the past would i change what happened to us and in a weird way i don't think i would mm. like because we wouldn't if dylan had been here let's say he he'd, um got to so to give some context Bryony had uh some issues with her how thick her blood was is probably the simplest way to put it so her blood would clot quite quite easily which meant that the placenta was getting blood clots in it, which meant that the blood wasn't flowing into Dylan and he wasn't getting the right levels of nutrients, um, which meant that he wasn't growing at the right rate. So his brain was fine. He was perfectly, because his brain prioritised the oxygen flow into it to make sure that grew, but his limbs were short, right? So what they said to us is, if we can get him to a viable weight, 500 grams, they said, which is just over a pound for old bunny, then we'll have an emergency cesarean because we can do more for him out of the body He'll obviously be in intensive or NICU for a long time whilst we try and give him the right nutrients so the rest of his body can kind of catch up. It may be that he always has physical issues and all that kind of stuff. And he was, at, it got to, she went for, a, um, she was being scanned every week effectively and um, she went for a scan and they said his heart stopped. And he, I think he, when he was actually born, he weighed 410, 415, something like that, grams. So he wasn't a long way off, but he was sufficiently small when his heart stopped it wouldn't have made any difference if they got him out at, at that point he wouldn't have been viable to to survive i've completely lost my train of thought with this no but there was something you well Bryony said it last night it ties to what you've just said is she said i think what we've gained is more than what we've lost yeah, 
yeah so, so yeah so if okay this is where i was going with it, with it right if we'd managed to you're get well, him to yeah, thanks if we'd managed to get into a viable weight and he'd been born i think the stress of on our relationship of that situation probably would have driven us apart as i mentioned earlier we didn't really like each other much at that time anyway mm. and i don't think we would be together anymore i think she would have realized i was a complete tool and divorced me pr probably pretty quickly He's given me... You said last night that you'd come to her senses at some point and realise how amazing you were. Yeah, that, no chance. So don't, don't try and butter it up for the listeners, you know? So <laughs> Go on. So he has given us more because he's made us realise that the most important person in the world to me, other than Jensen now, obviously, is Bryony. And I'd like to think she think, thinks the same of me. And I'd like to think that she feels that she's got someone in me that can support her through any of anything that's thrown at us. And likewise... I know that I can rely on her to be my rock and my inspiration, any of that sort of stuff as well. So I don't think I would change it because I don't think I'd be the person I am today, which isn't, I'm not a great person, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm a wonderful human being. I'm not, I have the same issues that a lot of others do, but I do like to think that I'm a little bit more considerate than I used to be. I like to think that when my friends are going through crap as well, that I, I'll always be on hand to do whatever they need me to do and all that kind of stuff and I and I just don't I don't know if I would have ever changed the way I was if it hadn't been for him and that would have been a bit of a waste really I think so yeah so I wouldn't I wouldn't change that I wanted to make sure in this podcast we at least touched on your experience at the Masters because I it's just one of the experience it's a bucket list experience in golf 100% for the committed golfer 100% and there's not even a, I don't you're the only person I think I know that's been, who's been really yeah so tell us what's um, it like I mean, did it live up to your expectations yes is the is the short answer I mean I think there's a couple of things that I potentially would have changed because on competition days you can't take your phones in you have to leave your phones outside the grounds. You can't get any photos or anything like that. But if you go on practice days, you can take photos of the course. So that's one of the things I think it would, would have been quite cool to go to a practice day so we could get some pictures um, when we're there. But I mean, I just based on the fairly limited experience of going to watch live golf, that's a normal. No, that's a Masters, that's, a that's an Augusta, classic Augusta, Augusta, Augusta thing. Because Augusta, they, they, they also insist that they are the ones that do all of the footage. Yeah. coverage is all done by Augusta it's not done by the PGA Tour it's all done by Augusta because then they control the rights for it mm. and I think they're worried about people videoing golf shots and things like that because it dilutes their power in that in that space but that whole trip was but I think that there's almost something I quite like about that and so much as it controls the mystique that for sure, around. sure. And, I, and I'm um, like I'm quite a I like to experience stuff right so to give you an example when we got married, Brian was like, are we getting a videographer? And I was like, no, I want a photographer, but I don't want someone to video our wedding. And she was like, well, why not? And I said, because I want to remember it for how I remember it. I don't want to remember it when I watch the video back, when you make me watch the video back of, of our wedding yeah, and think, yeah, yeah. actually, that's not how I remember that happening, which will always yeah. happen, right? There'll always be things in there that you think, oh, I missed that. I don't care about the things I missed. I only really care about the things I experienced. So actually not being able to take photos as long as my memory stays intact, that's always going to be in my head. Like I, I can picture now exactly where we sat on that Sunday, watching we sat next to the 15th green, which is the par five with the water in front. Is that the one where Sergio had a mare? Yeah. Sergio Garcia. Yeah, yeah. Did yeah that, 13, when, when, wasn't it? Justin Rose, he was playing against Justin Rose. Oh, didn't he win that year? Was it that year? I can't remember. It might have been the year after he won. The, Sergio, the year that Sergio won? Yeah. No, that was a year we were cretting him for the Ryder Cup thing we were doing. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So that hole, so it's a par five. That was that the year that he was defending it. 
Might have been. I Might think. Have been. Yeah, yeah. The year after that. Yeah. Um, because the year he won it was against Justin Rose, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. It was. Um, yeah. So yeah, the, the, it's a par five that plays up onto the top of a hill, and then it's really it's two shots into um, the green, and we were sat. We sat there for the majority of the day. We, were, I mean, we watched. We walked around a little bit earlier in the day, but that was such a good place to plot up, if you like, because we could nip out and get beers. Food there was really good as well, so you could get food, which was dirt cheap as well. I think they said that um, you could order everything on the menu once at Augusta, and it wouldn't cost you more than sixty nine dollars for the entire menu. And it was a big menu, right? There's a lot of stuff on there, so the prices there are like. $1.50 for a sandwich. What was the pick like. of the, the items on the menu? Well, they bang on about this pimento I was going to ask you about that. Sandwich, but it was, very mixed reviews. It was average, I would say. The barbecue pork thing they did was really good. And then they had uh, this kind of pecan popcorn stuff, which was also really decent. But yeah, so we, we found the right spot. And then we spent, uh, there was, how many of us were there? Six of us sat in there. Eight of us went. Two of the boys went to watch Arsenal play at lunchtime because they're pair of losers um, and then they came back in and they couldn't find us we didn't have any phones so they didn't know where so we were sat right so, like this sort of thing that only an Arsenal fan yeah. you do yeah and they lost as well they lost did they can we just add who do you support uh, I'm a Spurs fan right but um, so yeah so there were six of us there and then what we were doing is we were betting between us I think it was like five bucks a, um, a two ball that would come through and you would choose whether the which one of them would make birdie or better on this thing if they neither of them made birdie then the money went carried over to the next one and so we would this is a little take it in turns, yeah, just in, just guys, between yeah. us. And we had an awesome afternoon just watching them come in. And then when it was finishing and there was Ram and Kepka going up the 18th, we managed to get to the side so we could see their approach shots. And Ram put his tee shot into the trees on 18. And then I think he hit provisional but found his first one. I had quite a bit of money on Brooks Kepka as well, which is a bit annoying because he let me down, but... It was just how such... many days of the four day? We just went on the Sunday, so oh, on the... final day. We Good. got we got there the Thursday, and then um, on the Friday we went to. I mean, we went just went, just went with your golf travel. They organised it for us, and then we went to. They had like a hospitality thing in Augusta, so we went there, which was like food and drink, all complimentary, a golf driving, a golf simulator thing in there, and all of the screens up. And then they had in the evening, I think Danny Willett came in and did a bit of Q and A and all that kind of stuff. So that was quite cool. So we were. We got pretty drunk that day. And then the Saturday, we were meant to play golf in Colombia, which is where we were staying. But the weather was horrendous on the Saturday. I don't know if you remember the um, two trees came down at Augusta. Hmm. That was on the Saturday, and the weather was just biblical rain. And then, so we just, I think we went to a bar and then maybe went out for the evening or something. I can't really remember. And then on the Sunday, we went to Augusta. You wouldn't have been able to tell it had rained. There was a couple of boggy-ish bits, but the course was just immaculate. And then, yeah, had maybe eight hours of watching... Some of the best golfers um, knocked the ball around, not Rory McIlroy because he missed the cut, as we talked about yesterday, <laughs> which is another reason I'm not a massive fan of his. It had something to do with a bet? Oh, no, not that not no. that time, just over the years. Oh, I see. cost me a lot. Where yeah, got... it's betting bit, yeah, okay? Yeah, so it's not against yeah. the human well, being. No, like, and, and he, yeah. he did annoy me, so I went there to... Are, I was were, lucky there enough. are names for people like you, yeah. Ben. Like, know, you know, yeah, and it's this a growing trend in golf. Like, but you know... It, but it bothered you. What, what people, really tipped it off People like me. you sledging professional golfers just <laughs> for trying to do <laughs> their job. Just yeah, but okay, you lost okay, bet. Uh, no, okay so, so doing their job, fine, I get that, right? 2015, open, St. Andrews. Lucky enough to go along to watch that, right? Was excited about seeing Rory McIlroy play because he was one of the. I think he was number one in the world at the time. Were you or were you excited about the st- like the the win the return that you might have got on your bet? No, no, I didn't have. I didn't back him. Oh, I backed oh, Louis Eustace okay. in that year. Oh, okay, um, who came second, I think, or third. He was on the playoff with um, with Zach Johnson, who won it. Him and Mark Leishman. Anyway, 
and the day before the Masters, I'm pretty sure it was the day before, it might have been a couple of days before, Rory McIlroy was playing five-a-side football with his mates and went over on his ankle and then was injured for the Open, so I didn't get to see him. So I was most annoyed at that. But I did get to see Tiger Woods, which was pretty cool. Very cool. So yeah, the Masters trip was just otherworldly, I would say. So what's your defining memory, if you had to pick out one from your trip to the Masters? The one thing I remember very vividly was when we were walking up that 18th, and you, it was 10 people deep at that point. And obviously I had a bit of money on Brooks Kepri, who was like three or four shots behind at that time. And I just remember seeing John Rahm's tee shot just veer left into the trees. And I thought, I've got a chance here. <laughs> I've got a chance. He might come back into it. And then the disappointment I felt when he walked up and found his first ball and played his first ball. He <laughs> might, I, I, can't even remember if he, I, I can't even remember if it was his first ball that he played. He may have, I mean, he won comfortably anyway, didn't he? But the roar out of there when he held that putt was, you couldn't even see the green, but the roar on it was just phenomenal. And, um, it was such a cool, cool trip. And the boys we went with were such such good fun with those guys. And then we went and played golf in Kira Island for three days after as well, which was spectacular. I saw you using that nice uh, ball marker from Kiowa Island, yeah. We played the ocean course there, which is the one, uh, it's the I think it's hardest rated in America, and it was tough. That course? Yeah, the ocean the course. Ocean course of Kiowa Island, yeah. yeah. But it was meant to, it really, it was really, really quite a spectacular views and all that kind of stuff, so. So another question I have for you, maybe we'll probably make this last one. If um, if you could relive one golfing memory with which involves you playing, okay, what would it be? And talk us through the shot. Talk us through the shots, okay. uh, the whole. I mean, this don't is gonna... talk me through the round. I mean, I, that's getting getting excessive now. But like, this is the one, right? This is the one that I always annoy people with uh, if they ever bother listening to me. But I've been lucky enough to play in the old course at St Andrews a couple of times, and. I was playing pretty well, probably one of the best rounds I've had at the old course. And on 18, I hit a drive. This the road hole? No, no, the no, road hole's the 17th. Yeah, okay. The one that you knock it over the top of the... The hotel, yeah. yeah. So I, 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 I bogeyed that, which I was quite okay. happy with. Sorry, I shot. I no, it's fine. Really. So yeah. I hit my drive on 18. And I was very conscious that the right, there's all those houses, all the buildings and the shops and all that kind of stuff. I ended up pulling it quite a long way to the left. When I walked up to the ball... Like all the, the three other boys that I was playing with, they were, they were kind of middle of the fairway on the right-hand side, but I was a long way left. And the, the first and the 18th play alongside one another. And there's a little road that goes across the middle of, like a track-type road that goes right across the middle of the first and the 18th. And as I walked up to it, the caddy said to me, and my ball was on this road, the caddy said to me, just move it off the road. And I said, yeah, but this particular road, I'm not allowed to move this ball off, am I? I should play it from here because that's a local rule. It's not one that you can just pick and move it off the thing. And then um, she was brilliant. I think she played on the ladies' tour at some point, but she said, they're not going to know, just move it. And I said, if I do that and they see that, they're going to crucify me. So I said, I'm just going to have to play it from here. And she's like, all right. She said, what are you going to do? And then yeah, I still had about maybe 100 yards into the green with the Valley of Sin in front of me. So I said, I'm going to chip a hybrid. So can you pass me my hybrid, please? So she passed me the hybrid out. And I chipped it like a little punchy chip all the way through, rolled up through the Valley of Sin, stopped 10 feet from the pin. What sort of distances are you hitting this? About 100 yards. So it's like a proper little sort of punchy chip approach. And it rolled up, went through the Valley of Sin, rolled up 10 feet. So I had a birdie putt. As I was walking up to the thing, I was quite chuffed for myself, obviously, as you can imagine. And I just heard the caddy say to the other three caddies, did you see that shot? Unbelievable. And I was like, yes, <laughs> this is brilliant. 
Um, and then there was probably about 30 people that were around the 18th green. And I had a birdie putt, to, which would have meant I was five or six shots under my handicap at the time to finish that round. And I three putted from 10 feet. <laughs> oh, you three putted <laughs> from 10 feet. I did give it a run at the hole both times. It went past the hole both times, burned the edge both times as well. But yeah, so I shot an 85 around the old course, which was, um, I was still chuffed to bits with that. It was phenomenal. But that's my, that would be my one but, uh, bit that I'd relive. I love that you... I'd really... like to relive the parts. So yeah, exactly. No, but I just I just love that. That tells me, again, you don't take your golf too, too seriously. Like You just, you remember the... So what was most memorable about that? The 100-yard chip with the 100? Yeah, I would yeah. say that was... Yeah. You know, that was yeah. um, the, through that valley of sin, like the amount of times you've seen people get to... They hit their drive just short of it, don't they? Yeah. And then they can't get the distance right on... Yeah, and it rolls back down into the valley of sin and all that kind of stuff. It's just such an iconic place for golf. I love St. Andrews as well. As a place, it's just, it's yeah, such it's a pretty, cool... There's something quite special about yeah. it, isn't there? Yeah, it's really, really nice. So, um, Steeped in hopefully golf I can go back there at some point. Very nice. Well, Ben, thank you very much. Thank you, mate. It's been a pleasure having you, and uh, thanks for your friendship and support. Always, buddy, always. Always.